Well, good morning, Gateway family. Good to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. I'm thankful for the last five weeks we've had to talk about biblical community and ask you to continue to pray for us as we continue to seek God's will of how we apply what we've been learning on that. But I'm excited, with that said, to get back into the Gospel of John this morning. We've finished 10 chapters of the Gospel of John, and we're starting chapter 11 today. So we are 11 chapters to go in the book. We are almost halfway there with the Gospel of John. We've seen a lot in the first 10 chapters of John. We've seen a lot of affirmations of who Jesus is. We've seen a lot of discourses or conversations between Jesus and different individuals of all different backgrounds. We've seen a lot of signs and a lot of miracles as well. But particularly throughout the Gospel of John, I hope you've seen that we've seen more of what it means to believe. We talk all about what belief is, and I hope through these first ten chapters of John, you have a deeper understanding now of what belief in Jesus really looks like. In fact, that's why John wrote the book. John chapter 20, verse 31 is our key verse, if you will, for the whole study. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I want us to get back to trying to make sure we know that. So I want us to read it together this morning. We're not going to take the words away today, but I want us to read it with the words on the screen. So would you say it with me? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's my prayer for you and for me as we continue this study, that we will have life in his name, that we will have deeper understandings, deeper belief in who Christ is. We've seen a lot about what that belief looks like. We've seen that belief is not just intellectual, but it's being made a child of God. We've seen that belief is receiving grace upon grace, that belief is a radical transformation from above. We see that belief means we're satisfied in Jesus. We've taken Jesus into our being, and because of our belief, we've seen that if we really believe, we desire to obey, we desire to be in His Word, we love His glory, and our lives are different. And we've seen that and so much more through the first 10 chapters. But we've also seen in these first 10 chapters what belief does not mean. And belief does not mean our lives get easy. Belief does not mean that trials go away. <clears throat> Just because we experience eternal life now doesn't mean we're exempt from the difficulties and the trials of life. With that said, before we get to our text this morning, I want to remind us of something we talked about way back in June in John chapter 6. Remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000, that big miracle. And he stays and he sends his disciples across the sea without him. He sends them into the storm. That's the account where Jesus walks on the water after the severe storm <coughs> arises. But if you remember from that week... In our culture, we tend to romanticize this story. And the disciples are in the boat and the storm is coming. And poof, Jesus appears and the storm's over. But if you remember way back from June, that wasn't quite how it happened. Jesus sends them into the storm and he doesn't appear walking on the water until about six to nine hours later. He leaves them in the boat in the storm for six to nine hours, struggling against the storm before he walks on the water to come to them. We saw that morning back in June that Jesus sent them into the storm, yet kept them in his care. And I want to remind us that as a believer in Christ, God does not remove the trials from our lives. Just because we believe, just because we walk with God, doesn't mean we do not have trials or difficulties in life. We raised a fundamental question back in June when we were looking at John 6. Why does Jesus send them into the storms? Why does he send us into the storms? It's going to be very important for what we're looking at today because we're going to see the same thing. But Jesus sent them in the storms because he loved them. And Jesus sends us into trials as well because... He loves us. He was teaching the disciples who he was. He was revealing himself to them. And friends, that's so countercultural what our culture says love is. Our love makes it sound like you only do what the other person wants and you only do things that make them feel good. But remember, God, God is a standard of love, not our standard. We don't hold God to our standard. He is a standard and we need to align to him. 
Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the 1800s, said this. He said, the love of Jesus does not separate us from the common necessities and infirmities of life. Men of God are still men. The covenant of grace is not a charter of exemption from consumption, rheumatism, or asthma. The covenant of grace that we've experienced is not an exemption from consumption, rheumatism, or asthma. And I would add to that the covenant of grace, the fact that we are recipients of God's grace, is not an exemption from financial difficulties. The grace we experience of God doesn't mean we will never have sickness or face death of loved ones or have broken relationships and people turning us. We will experience trials in this life. And even as William was praying this morning, there are trials going on in the needs of the body right now. There's people with financial difficulties, people who've lost loved ones this very week, people who are struggling with broken relationships. The trials of life are there, and we're not exempt as followers of Christ from the difficulties of life. And where is God in the midst of these trials? And that's where we come to this morning as we get to John chapter 11. There's one thing I want us to see this morning from John chapter 11. It's simply this, that God lovingly gives trials to show us his glory or to show his glory to us and to others. God lovingly gives trials to show his glory to us and to others. Friends, trials and God's love are not opposed to each other. I think somehow because of our culture's way of defining love, we see God's love and we see trials as some type of incompatibility that can't go together. But I hope you saw it in John 6 months ago, and I hope you see it again this morning, that trials and God's love go hand in hand for us. That God gives us trials. Why? Because he loves us. Now, that's not fun. I'm not pretending that's fun or easy, but it's good for us. God reveals his glory in the trial so we know him more and believe, and so others around us know him more and believe. God lovingly gives trials to show us his glory for us and for others. Now, in John chapter 11, we're picking up this morning. Let me remind us of where we left off five weeks ago. We've seen in John chapter 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus holds us. He pursues us. And we saw the beautiful image of him as our shepherd. And where we left off in John 10, the Jewish leaders have rejected what Jesus claims to be. They understand Jesus is claiming to be God, and they don't like it. They try to stone Jesus in John 10, but they don't. They try to arrest him, but he gets away because his time has not come. And Jesus crosses the Jordan, leaves the area of Jerusalem there, and a short time passes, and that's where today's account picks back up. So to get our minds back of where we were. So that was what was just going on in the weeks preceding in Jesus' life when we come to John chapter 11 today. So we're going to actually pick up at the end of John chapter 10, verse 39. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God? John chapter 10, starting in verse 39. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him. They said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, chapter 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, 
Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death. They thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your living word that you've given to us. Father, in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters, would you let us treasure your word that you've spoken to us, that you've revealed yourself to us. And Father, this morning as we look at this account of Lazarus that's so familiar for many of us, even as we start talking about it today, I pray you give us fresh eyes to see it, fresh eyes to see how big and sovereign you are, fresh eyes to see how much you love us, and fresh eyes to see how your love is manifest even in our difficulties and trials. And we use that to strengthen our faith like you strengthen the faith of the disciples right here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Again, I want you to see here from this first part of John chapter 11 that God lovingly gives trials to show his glory to us and to others as well. Look at the setting of what's going on here. Jesus has crossed the Jordan after being rejected in Jerusalem. He's going to be there three to four months before he returns to Jerusalem. Somewhere in this three to four month period after leaving Jerusalem, this account today happens. So somewhere in these 12 or so weeks after what we just saw last time we were in John, that's where we pick up today. Now look at the setting. Let's go back to chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was ill. So what's going on here? Jesus receives words of event in Bethany. Bethany was not too far from Jerusalem, but it's about 20 miles or so from where Jesus is now. It's a full day's walk to where he is. And what's happening in Bethany? Well, there's two sisters here, Mary and Martha, people you're familiar with from other parts of the Bible. You see them in Luke chapter 10, where Martha is busy serving and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. And Martha gets pretty ticked off that Mary is not helping her get ready for the meal. If you remember that story from Luke 10, that's the same people we're seeing right here. And in a few weeks when we get to John chapter 12, we'll see Mary again. Where she goes to Jesus, breaks expensive perfume on his feet, uses her hair and wipes his feet there, is preparing for his, what we call the passion stories there of his, his crucifixion and resurrection. So that's Mary and Martha. Lazarus, the one who's sick, we don't know a lot about him. Do you know nowhere in the Bible does Lazarus ever speak? So we have no quotes from him. We know nothing that Lazarus ever said. So we don't know much about him here except for he's, well, the brother of Mary and Martha and he's, well, he's pretty sick. That's about all we know about this guy. The word here for ill means to be sick, weak, or feeble. This man is not doing well. It's the same word to describe him that's used to describe the paralyzed man laying by the pool, you know, who is hoping to get healed. Same word here. What we do know from the context here is he's really close to dying. And because of that, Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. Verse 3. So the sister sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now notice they don't tell Jesus what to do. They just say, well, He's ill. Well, what are they asking for? Well, look down in verse 21 because their request is obviously implied here. In verse 21, you see what they were hoping would happen. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they just informed Jesus that Lazarus is sick. What they're looking for here is healing, restoration of his health. And I want to see what happens when Jesus responds, but not in the way we would expect. First of all, before we get to that, we need to realize Jesus loves these people. John goes out of his way to stress the love of Jesus to this family and this family to Jesus. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. 
The word here for love is the Greek word phileo. If you remember, English is not as specific as Greek. This is phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, friendship love. This one that you have a deep friendship love for, a brotherly affection for, is sick. And then Jesus responds in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here the word for love is the word agape, covenant, committed love. And the way that the phrase is is set up here is stressing his love for each of them. He loved Mary. He loved Martha. He loved Lazarus. So don't miss this. Jesus is considering these people to be friends. He feels a brotherly affection to them. And Jesus loves them with a committed covenantal love. These are friends that he is committed to for their good. And that's important to realize because we're about to see it doesn't seem like the way most of us would define being good and loving and brotherly affection for our friends. So let's look at what happens with this trial and what Jesus does out of his love, his brotherly love and his committed love for them. Verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now go down to verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. So Jesus, who is all-powerful, his God gets word from this family he loves with brotherly affection, is committed to with a committed type of love. He gets word of a request that Lazarus is dying and they want him to heal Lazarus. So what does he do? Nothing. He's God. He could do what he wanted to. He could have healed from a distance. He didn't even have to go. Think all the way back to John chapter 4. An official comes to Jesus. My son is sick. Jesus speaks, doesn't even go, and the official son way far away gets healed. Jesus is God. He could have at this point goes, oh, man, I'm so sorry to hear that. He's healed. He's well. He won't die. Don't worry. He doesn't do that. He could have gone right away with the messengers. Oh, my goodness. I love this family. They're suffering. They're grieving. I'll go with them to be with them and then heal him. He doesn't do that. And friends, don't gloss over what that means. We're looking at on this side of history. Mary and Martha and Lazarus did not know that Jesus was going to raise Lazarus. All they know is they sent word to their their friend who is the Savior who's come into the world and said, the one you love is sick and dying, and they don't hear anything back. No response, no reply. And friends, Lazarus dies. This is not modern America. We go to the hospital and get a lot of morphine and it's okay through this. In the midst of these four days, Mary and Martha watch their brother suffer. Mary and Martha watch him die. They feel the grief because, again, we know that Jesus is going to raise him, but they don't know that yet. All they know is they sent word to their, to, to their Savior, and they haven't heard anything from him. And they watch their brother suffer and die in their house before their eyes. Days pass, they feel real grief, and there's no word from Jesus. With that in view, again, listen to verses 5 and 6 again. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This word so is not an English edition. It is in the Greek. It means so, or therefore, or consequently, or because of. That is just as stunning to the original readers of John as it is to us now. Lazarus is dying. They are grieving. He is suffering And it says in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, because of his love, consequently because he loved them, he chose to stay where he was two days and let's just add and let Lazarus die. God lovingly gives trials. What is he up to in this? Why did God do it this way? Well, part of the answer is found in verse 4. He's doing this because he's doing something bigger than just what they want. He's showing God's glory. Look at verse 4. 
When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Well, it says it does not lead to death. What does that mean? Because obviously he dies. This phrase, does not lead to death, means that death is not the ultimate result of what's going to happen. Death is not the ultimate end, the ultimate goal of what's happening right here. There's something bigger going on here. In other words, this trial that Lazarus and Mary and Martha are going through is not random. God's up to something bigger. What that means is there is a reason for their suffering. And friends, that needs to sink into our hearts when we're facing trials and suffering. Suffering and trials are not random. There's a reason in God's providence for the sufferings and trials we go through. What is the ultimate reason for Lazarus' illness and death and the way Jesus handled this? What is going on here? What is the main point of us all? Jesus tells us plainly in verse 4, it's for, not for us, it's for the glory of God. And look back at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for, the illness is for the glory of God. So that, why is there the illness? So that the Son of God may be glorified in it. What is glory? Glory is God's fame, God's praise, God's greatness on display. The sickness of Lazarus, the sufferings, everything he's going through, all the grief Mary and Martha is going through, the primary reason for it is for God's praise, God's fame, God's honor, God's greatness to be lifted up. Now, friends, that shouldn't surprise us. We're going to pop several verses on the screen just to refresh our memory. John chapter 1, verse 14. Why did Jesus come? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His what? His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Everything about Jesus' coming was primarily not because we're so amazing He came for us. It's because of God's glory. John chapter 2, verse 11. Why did Jesus do miracles? This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested as what? His glory and His disciples did what? They believed. The miracles were not primarily to be like, well, that's cool. Jesus can turn water to wine. I want Him at my party. That's not like the main thing going on here. This is all about Jesus doing signs and wonders so that the glory of God is on display so that people then believe in response. John chapter 9, verse 3. We've already seen the man born blind and people ask Jesus, who sinned? Why does this man have this affliction in life? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents why was a man born blind? But that the works of God, another way to describe the glory of God, might be displayed in him. Why did this man have this blindness in life? It was for the glory of God so that people might believe. And ultimately, this is what Scripture teaches, what we just sang about a minute ago. Romans chapter 11, verse 36 tells us, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the what? The glory forever. So how much of things are supposed to glorify God? All things here. There's nothing that falls outside of God being glorified. And so even the trials that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were going through fall under the for from him and through him and to to him are all things to him be the glory forever. God lovingly gives them trials to show his glory, not only to them, but to others. Well, that raises the question, how in the world can a trial glorify God? Again, I'm not pretending that trials are easy or fun. They're not. But how can a trial glorify God? And there's so many things we could say on that. But there's one thing in particular that's highlighted in this text for us, and that is trials increase the faith of people. Trials increase the faith of people. When Jesus first receives the word of Lazarus' sickness and pending death, the first thing he does, what we just looked at in verse 4, is he frames it all in terms of God's glory. He looks at everything in light of God's glory. And then he shows us specifically what that looks like, and that is that the trial leads to faith, leads to belief, everything we've been talking about. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. 
but let us go to him. Again, notice these words here of Jesus. He loved the family. And he says, I am glad I was not there. I'm glad I wasn't there and stopped the suffering, the grief, the death. Why is he glad he wasn't there? Verse 15, for your sake. This is the disciples. This isn't even Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. This is for your sake, for his disciples. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus says, I'm glad I didn't heal the illness. I'm glad I didn't stop this trial. Why? Because I want your faith to increase. Now, we're going to see that he does this for the good of Mary and Martha as well. Next week, we're going to look at how Mary and Martha interact with Jesus when Lazarus is raised. And we will see that good comes to them as well. But God is up to good beyond what just the family that's suffering is going through as well. Many others believe because of this. And friends, that's so significant for us. Romans, 8, verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is a verse we're familiar with. And we know that for those who love God, all things, you know, miss the word all, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The problem is, in our culture, when we read this verse, we add a word in there that's not there. We do this in even, there's a, a popular song on the radio today, on Christian radio, that has this verse in it, but they add a word. And that is, all things work together for my Good. Friends, the word my is not in there. God loves us. There's no question about it. And God is going to work good in our lives through it. But the good God is up to may be bigger than your story or my story. God's up to something a lot bigger than just our lives. And that's hard for us in our culture of individualism and everything's about self and self-advancement. God says all things work together not for what's going to make me look best and make me feel best and get me through life easiest, but all things that are happening in my life are working for good as God defines good, as His kingdom sees good on that. And so God lovingly gives trials to show His glory to me, but also to others as well. And that's, in fact, what happens here in this particular text. The disciples actually have their faith strengthened because of what happens in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Then after, he said to, then after this, He said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Verse 8. The disciples said to Him, Rabbi... The Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They're not excited about this. They, it's dangerous to go back to where Jesus just was because the crowds are after him. But Jesus is stretching their faith. He just explains to them what is going on with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the goal of faith. And look at what happens at the end. One of the disciples gets it. And it's an unlikely disciple. Verse 16. So Thomas. Let me just pause there. Do you remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? The one that we don't hold up as a model of faith for most people. This is the one who's speaking now. The one who rarely steps up as a leader that we see in Scripture. But he speaks on behalf of the disciples. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Friends, Jesus' trial in the life of Mary and Martha and Lazarus is already working faith into the heart of one of the most unlikely disciples. And that is Thomas. And since Thomas, 20 centuries of believers, including us today, are having our faith strengthened by the trial of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The grief and very real grief they felt, the very real trial they went through, yes, God's going to work good in their life, but you know something? Their trial worked good in your heart and my heart as well as we study the Word of God. 20 centuries later, God is bringing good still to this trial that they experienced because why? The glory of God has been on display and at all. God lovingly gives trials to show his glory to us and to others. So what do we do with that in our lives? And that's not the feel-good message for the day, right? Guess what? God's going to give you trials because he's up to bigger good than just your story, but it's going to work good in your heart also. What do we do with all that? Well, first of all, we realize we're going to face trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 promises that. And you know, over this year of being your pastor, 
You heard me say this before. I've been to a lot of your homes. I've yet to find any of you with this verse framed over your sofa yet. There's all the cool pictures of the eagles and, you know, we'll rise up like wings of eagles. I've yet to go into someone's home and see a picture of suffering over their sofa with this verse on there. But James chapter 1, verse 2, it's a promise from the word. Count it all joy, my brothers. Notice it's not the word if. Again, in our culture, we read the word if into it, but it's not there. Count all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Again, you heard me say it a lot. That's not the promise we want to claim. But in God's providence in this life, we will face trials of many kinds. Why? He's going to work good. Verse, the next verse, verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. In verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God in his kindness will allow trials in your life as his child. Why? Because he's working good. Good for you. Good to make you mature and complete. Good to give you steadfastness in him. But also realize it's bigger than just you. It's good for others as well. Friends, you've heard me say it before. But God has never promised that, that his job is to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. That's not his primary goal for our life. His primary goal is his glory and his glory being displayed through us as we worship him and follow him. And that means trials come because it's part of our growing in godliness. So what do we do with this? If God's going to lovingly give us trials in our life to show his glory to us and to others, what do we practically do with that? And that's where I want to end today with three things for you. When you're in a trial or when you face a trial, there's three things I think we need to remember in life. Number one, we trust him. We trust him. It doesn't mean we have to understand. Friends, Mary and Martha and Lazarus did not understand what was going on at the time. When they send word to Jesus, the one you love is sick, and they hear nothing back for four days, and their brother continues to, de- to decline and die, they don't understand. God has never promised us that we would understand why he does what he does. He's God, we're not. But we can trust him because he's shown us his character and he is good. And he is so very good and so very kind and so very trustworthy. And so we think about God's character. We think about his love for us, his children. And we'll see that next week when Jesus appears to Mary and Martha. And even in the midst of that, he weeps with them. We can trust him even when it doesn't make sense. Second of all, friends, we worship him. Everything in our life is about his glory. Everything is for him. Therefore, we can worship him in that. One of the best examples in scripture is Job. You think about Job, a man who lost everything. And what was his response to Job chapter 1, verse 21? This is Job's response to having just lost property and his children. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of Well, we like the part the Lord gave, and we want to praise him in that. But Job is right. The Lord is sovereign. He gives and he takes away, and blessed be his name. And then verse 22 tells us Job's heart attitude. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Friends, that's an example for us in the midst of trials. Even when it doesn't make sense, we can trust God, and we can still worship him. Because our worship of God is not contingent upon life working the way I want it to work. It's upon me following the God who is sovereign over all things and knows what he's doing. And think about Job's life. It's a perfect example of this. 2,500 years later, people's faith is still being strengthened by his trials. Again, was it for Job's good? Sure. God did great works. Life. Was it fun? No. Was it painful? Was there trials beyond anything you and I have experienced? But was it good for him? Yes. And is it good for us? Yes. God lovingly gave Job trials. And if you want to go back and read Job, we'll get into a study on spiritual warfare one day. I'm kind of itching to preach on that sometime. But if you look at it, Satan didn't initiate that stuff. God's the one who goes to Satan and says, have you thought about Job over here? Look at how holy and righteous he is. Look at how much he loves me, Satan. 
It's all God's sovereign initiative, friends. And yet Job's life and the trials God allowed in his life and gave to him now strengthen your faith and mine. For 2,500 years, good has come to the church because of what happened in Job's life. God lovingly gives trials to show his glory to us and others. So we trust God. We worship God. Number three, don't waste your trials. Don't waste your trials, friends. When we end up in trials, and we will, we have a choice of how we respond. We can look at our trials and and sufferings and difficulties of life in a worldly way. And we can see them as pointless, as meaningless. It's just hard and stupid and there's no good coming out of them. And we get angry and bitter and disappointed, just like the world does. Look at the way non-believers handle grief and sufferings and sickness, all that goes with it. There's no hope in the trials. And as far as Christ, if we're not careful, we can be that way also. And we waste our trials if we approach them the way the world does. But friends, by God's grace, we can redeem our trials. We can see them as God's grace gift to us. And there's lots of things we could talk about in this. And I'd encourage you, if you are in the middle of a trial and struggling with how can good come out of this, there's a book in the hallway called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. You heard me mention it before. I, I cannot recommend that one enough to you. But what do we get out of our trials? What happens? We, well, we realize that God grieves with us in these trials. You realize that God is a suffering God? That Jesus suffered more than any of us will ever suffer? When we talk about a great high priest who could empathize with us in our weaknesses, when you're suffering, God's not up in heaven and be like, ha, 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 that's good for him. God is grieving with you and suffering with you. He loves you as his child, and he allows trials in your life for, for your good, for the good of others, and for his glory. But he's not doing that impassionately or coldly. He's grieving with you, too, because he himself has suffered also. He allows trials in the short life, but he also sees the big picture, friends. He's, not, he's seeing eternity. Whatever trial you're going through, I can promise you in 80 years you're not going to still be in that trial. And you've got trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years after that in Christ to where that trial is going to seem like a blip, even if it lasts all of your life on this earth. We see our trials through eternal lenses and realize that even the sufferings of this present life prepare us for an eternal weight of glory far beyond anything we could fathom or imagine. So we don't waste our trials when we realize that God is with us, grieving with us, and when we realize that God is doing something much bigger in the days coming where we don't have those trials anymore. But we also realize that God is using them now in our lives right now. I love what Tim Keller says in that book. He says, Our suffering, despite its painfulness, is filled with purpose and usefulness. Our suffering, despite its painfulness, is filled with purpose and usefulness. So friends, when you find yourself in a trial, it may be a trial like what Mary and Martha and Lazarus were going through, but maybe something completely different. Trust God. He's good and he loves you. Worship him because it's all about his glory anyway. And don't waste the trials. Friends, are your trials filled with purpose and usefulness? Can you say in the midst of the difficulties, I see God working, I trust him in this. Are you seeing the glory of God in the midst of the difficulties? And are you believing more because of whatever you're facing. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and showing yourself to us. And Father, it's hard to say we thank you for the trials because they're not easy. But Lord, we trust you and you're good. And Father, as I look around this room, I see people who are suffering trials right now. Sickness, financial difficulties, loss of loved ones, conflicts, estrangement between friends and family. And Lord, I pray right now you'd let them know your heart grieves with them. Would you let your presence be very, very real to them? 
But Father, I pray you'd help each one of us, whether we're in a trial now or whenever we hit a trial in the future, to realize these trials aren't catching you off guard. You're not in heaven throwing up your hands going, I didn't see that coming. God, would you remind us that you are on your throne and you are good and you are going to bring good in our life and the lives of others around us because of what you're allowing to happen. And would you, in your grace in our lives, help us to trust you more because of it. Lord, I pray as a result, our hearts will be filled with hope even in the hardest of days. In the darkest of nights, I pray we will realize we are never alone, that you are with us. And that you're working something much bigger than we could ever dream or imagine. Would you fill our, all of our hearts with that type of hope even this day to tackle whatever it is that you've put before us the rest of this day and the rest of this week. To know you're on your throne and you are good. And Father, we will respond saying you are worthy of it all, like we already sang earlier. You're worthy of all praise and honor and adoration, Lord, because everything is from you, everything is through you, and everything is for you. And would you work that perspective in our hearts? Father, in our own human flesh, we look so short-sighted. We only see today. Lots of we don't even see today, we only see the next few minutes. But God, would you, through the work of your Holy Spirit and your grace in our lives, help us see things in the eternal lens. So long for that day when there's no more sufferings and trials, the day when we see you face to face, and the day that we're free from all the bondages of this life. But Lord, in the meantime, help us to trust you. Like it says in James, would you help us, give us grace to count it all joy when we face trials of many kinds. And we trust you in that. Have your way in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this morning, we're going to sing a song called Grace So Glorious. And friends, what a fitting song to end on. Because again, trials aren't easy. They're not something we would normally celebrate. But we can celebrate God's grace in the trials. As we sing about how wonderful, how magnificent His grace is, my prayer to you is don't let these be just words you would normally say. I want you to dwell on these and let this be a response of worship to God, of trust in Him for a glorious grace that He has given us when we long for the day that we see Him face to face, a grace that gives us strength for today to walk with Him and love Him and trust Him even in the hardest of days. So my prayer is that the words we sing today would not just be just a closing song before we go hit lunch, but would be a song of surrender, a song of trust, a song of praise to our God who is worthy of it all, as we already said. So would you stand and let's sing together how glorious our God's grace is.